0: From Bias to Equality podcast is brought to you by the CEO Magazine, Holman Web Lawyers, and b 2 Buy.
1: Hello, and welcome to my podcast, From Bias to Equality. I am your host, Sandra D'Souza. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are going to have a conversation with Ken Barton. Ken is a former CFO and CEO of Australian public companies, including Boral and Crown Resorts, Transition to then transition to advocate for gender diversity. While with the male champions of change in 2017, as CEO of Crown Resorts, he created a software solution to measure gender diversity and inclusion efficiently. It was successfully deployed at Crown and piloted at Microsoft Australia. In 2022, Ken acquired the software now leading gender fitness. So, what, what is gender fitness? Well, Gender Fitness empowers organizational leaders with real time tools to measure diversity and inclusion effectively. It assesses diversity and inclusion at all levels, enabling leaders to target initiatives strategically and monitor progress. The platform also evaluates meeting organizers' inclusive behaviors. Employees can self assess and engage their organization's commitment to diversity and inclusion, especially during meetings. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today.
2: Hi, Sandra. Great to be with you.
1: Well, I'm going to get started into um, learning a little bit about you because you do have um, obviously a very extensive corporate background. So I want to delve a little bit into that before we talk about gender fitness and your work there. So um, do you want to share with us, I guess, your career journey that um, at least led you to, you know, I know, you know, just go into it as much as you can and and how you got to, I guess, to Crown Resorts as a CEO. Sure. And it's quite a
2: long journey, Sandra, 30 (laughs) years, so quite some time. Um, Ten years in consulting. Uh, I was working at uh, Arthur Anderson, uh, as it was then, um, and left there in 1997. Uh, Joined what was then one of Australia's biggest industrial um, construction materials company, Pioneer. and and they were good enough to send me to the US. Uh, I worked for them in the US for three years. Uh, They were taken over uh, in 2000 and I joined Boral in the US. And then after a couple of years working for Boral in the US, came back to Australia as the group CFO uh, and was at Boral for for a decade. Um, So there's a pattern here, 10-year chunks for each one. (laughs) Uh, And then uh, after 10 years at Boral uh, as the CFO, Uh, I joined Crown Resorts as the CFO, uh, was with Crown again for a little over a decade, um, became the CEO in uh, 2000 um, and left uh, in early 2021. Um, But probably I think where it's relevant to your question, Sandra, is um, they're quite big organizations and in in a lot of senses, quite um, rigid organizations. Um, Boral, for example, has been around for over 75 years. And after that period of time, organisations become quite resistant to change. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you do want to make change in the organisations and having been through lots of exercises in looking to modify or change the way people act, um, you've got to be very good at doing it, but you've also got to have a good process for doing it. And if there's anything I've learned from 35 odd years in corporate, large corporates is uh, change matters. And how you do change matters a lot and I, and I think some of that experience, some of that thinking um, was very helpful to me and also was um, quite instructive to me when I came to the issue of gender diversity.
1: And I'm glad that um, it was it's a good segue to what I'm about to ask you. Um, so I'm glad that you kind of like led that way um it's because I guess what we just heard in your bio that it was your time in Crown that you you know you led the change. Um, and advocate for 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 gender diversity and so coming from like you said from from working companies that are quite rigid and and it's like you know shifting the titanic um to move a couple of degrees do you before i guess um, in terms of before we talk about how you do that do you want to take us a journey like what what's what's led that what started that and 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 what is it that you kind of like did during that time for, for um advocate for, for for trying to change that diversity
2: um yeah and and to be honest sandra I, I was not an advocate for gender diversity before i joined not that i was you know had a particular view on it it was just yeah. it, it didn't really sort of come onto my radar and i joined uh, what was then called the male champions of change in 2017 in melbourne uh at the time led by kate jenkins who was the sex discrimination commissioner and and i figured that this is a group of the you know the top ceos In Australia, they've been onto this issue. Liz Broderick originally started this group. They've been onto this issue for a while. Surely by now, the best minds in Australia would have cracked this issue. So I figured Mm. I'd just join and pretty much just educate myself on how this journey had had sort of evolved and concluded. But when I joined, it was pretty clear that there was still an awful lot of work to do. And I remember it was one of the very first meetings. um, And I joined a group that was looking at financial security for women. And it was a stat in this discussion early on that really caught my attention. And the stat was that women on average retire with 47% of the savings of men. And and the thing that struck me is that what you have in your retirement savings is a pretty good index of what you've earned over your entire working life. So Mm. what that's saying is that that women, on average, over their working life are earning half as much as men. And I thought, that can't be right. Um, and I remember talking that the head of one of Australia's biggest superannuation funds was in this group. And I said, how can that be right? And he said, well, yes, it's right. And it's a factor of two things, that women spend less time in the workforce, and they're paid less when they work. And I thought, well, I'm sure that's right mathematically, but that still happens. Wouldn't <laughs> that be yeah. right? Um, and the, the less time in the workforce is, is a complex issue, and probably it's one of the biggest issues, um, I think, confronting women in their career progression is if they choose to become the primary caregiver, how can they do that and not lose a lot of progression in their career? Mm. And I think a lot of that comes down to the availability and the economics of childcare. And and that's a big issue, and, and it's one that this government is certainly looking at in terms of how do you, how do you make childcare both affordable and available but the second bit um and if you look at the gender pay gap and the latest stats from the workplace gender equality agency say the gender pay gap is 23.8 percent so almost half of the problem is women in the workforce are getting paid less on average than men yeah. and that's something that's within the gift of all employers i mean every employer should look at that problem and say if and that's average across all of the every organization is very close more than 100 100 people so it's not just big companies, it's it's everybody. So it's, it's incumbent on organisations to look at that and say, how can it be that on average women are getting paid a quarter less than what men are getting paid? And that's, I think, a problem for all organisations to solve. And kind of when I sort of got my mind around that, Sandra, I thought, well, this is something we really should take back to Crown and look at how we're trying to address that problem at Crown.
1: That's great. Um, and so I think it's um, kind of like, you know, um I'm pleased to hear that some, uh, a program like male Champions of change has created that impact and that awareness which you weren't aware before and and um and but then among the women's networks so I've belonged to an international ngo for over 20 years and we talk about this all the time and I still find it quite um enlightening for me that there is a lot of assumption let's say in in the the mainstream, population that don't feel that there is an issue with that and so now that you're aware of this issue back then um and and um uh, so what was the next thing that you did after that
2: yeah so you know went back and to to, to crown as an organization and said you know i've heard this you know quite unbelievable news um i, I didn't believe that crown was um prejudicial in the way it, remunerated its employees so to my mind looking around the organization it wasn't as if I could see that there was discrimination in the way people were paid so I said well let's go to our WGIA data and what does that tell us and at the time just perhaps,
1: just just, just for, for the international audience do you want to just explain to yeah so
2: WGIA is releasing really, so WGIA is a federal government agency it's workplace gender equality agency and they're charged with collecting and reporting on data around women's gender issues, particularly in the workplace. And it's, it's. I would say, I don't think without a lot of risk that it's the most complete data set of, of um, workplace gender calculations that exist in the world. And so every year, every organisation with more than 100 employees uh, lodges a report with WUJIA that goes through their entire uh, salary, pools, uh, uh, all, the, all the salaries, wages and other benefits paid to employees and reports on the gender pay gap it also reports on the um, the organisation layers and the mix of males and females across the organisation layers. So it's a very complete data set. Uh, and probably for Australian employees, for the first time ever in the first quarter of next year after the next year's results are available, they're going to be publicly disclosed. So big organisations who have a gender pay gap will find their information splashed across the front page. So uh, yeah. if you're worried about... <laughs> If you're worried about reputational issues get cracking <laughs> on you <gender. laughs>
1: yeah um, amazing what happens when tra- transparency occurs
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes particularly when you know boards are sitting around the table thinking they're doing a good job until suddenly somebody you know pops in front of a report that says guess what this will be in the papers tomorrow turns out our gender pay gap is 25 percent which is above the yeah. average and everyone starts to scramble and for, for better or worse i was kind of scrambling in 2017 and saying what is this actually, you know, what is this for crown? And at the time, I think the gender pay gap on average was about 27% across the country and crowns was about 23%. So pretty much on average. Yeah. And and what's important is, so, and again, statistics are quite challenging because that doesn't really tell you the nature or the good the, the sort of diagnosis of the problem. And so for crown, what I said is, well, I need to understand this more. So we had a consulting firm, an actuarial firm come through and, and diagnose this problem. And their approach is to take every salary position in the organisation and uh, match them up like for like and take away reasons for differences in salary. So it could be performance, it could be qualifications, it could be experience, it could be a range of things. And what you're left with after you do that is the unexplained gap, which could be attributed to gender discrimination. And when they did that at, at Crown, the gap was less than 1%. It was like 0.4%, which
1: this was sort pretty of pretty much and, equal, but yeah,
2: it was statistically insignificant. So, so sort of good and bad news. Good is Crown wasn't discriminating against like for like people doing the same job on any basis, including gender. Bad news is we couldn't just solve the problem by writing a check for a third more pay for all the females, and the problem goes away. The issue, which I, I think Sandra exists in a lot of organizations, is just the management hierarchy. So, a, a lot of the entry level at Crown is not dissimilar to I think a lot of organisations, 48% of entry level was Crown, but then when you got to the more senior management layers, it was 34, 24, and then when you got to the KMP level, it was single digits. So the problem you have is on average, the higher paid jobs are dominated 70, 80, 90% by males and the entry level jobs are split more evenly. So the issue was around career progression. Um, and so my question was then, well, how do we how do we try and level the playing field in career progression, career development. And and that comes down to things like behaviour and the way you think about um, managing people through all the layers of the organisation and giving them a very equal opportunity to progress at the same rate. And, And I looked at the work that the male champions are doing and there was some great work there on things like policies, you know, making sure that your parental leave policy was good and fair and balanced, things like superannuation, domestic violence, flexible work what was missing was something around the behavioral piece which is how do we change behaviors in the organization so that women aren't held back and progress at a different rate because that's ultimately how you keep away and make progress on that 23 25% yeah. gender pay gap you've got to do something about getting equal representation and you know crown was an example but it's it's across the board 60% of advanced degrees in australia get awarded to females and there's 18 uh, ASX 300 CEOs who are females, yeah. 60. So yeah, and
1: and I'm nodding my head. I know you can't hear it on the audio. I'm, I'm I, just... <laughs> it was a
2: I think you could hear it. It was so 60. <laughs> percent Like by far the smartest people in the country graduating are female, and yet when you get to the to the you know by whatever measure the ASX 300, um, if you look at K yeah. so 60% graduate, 6% get to be yeah. CEOs listed companies. So there's and, something. And going as... on.
1: Yeah, and and just just to interrupt you there like and then I'm um the I mean, it's not just the ASX 300 but when we did our analysis we did analysis across all of ASX as well as NASDAQ and working through all the stock exchanges um where less than five percent have women represented um in c-suites or where, where if we're, when we're looking at 25 percent or more less than five percent of companies have achieved that. And so it's 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 a staggering number, and it's and it's so low, and and like you said, you know, just seeing you know women CEOs, um, in in companies, so the percentage is just even far less. So so you know this is this is what I mean, like you know, just talking about, um, the gaps and the issues. Um, and it's staggering. And so now that you've discovered this and you're seeing that, okay, Crown at the time is similar to a lot of organisation. And I agree with you because a lot of organisation have similar challenges. Um, so what, 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 is, what was the next thing that you did?
2: Yeah. And, and so I thought, well, somehow you need to put this issue front and centre in the organisation. And if I came, I was a CFO at three public companies for 20-something yeah. years. So I was relatively familiar with numbers. Um, And and so to my mind, and having seen this, as I said before, big organisations, the only way you can affect lasting change is to obviously do something to implement the change, but measure it and hold people accountable for it. And Mm. unless you've got a measurement which is telling you all the time whether you're making progress, whether the initiatives you're undertaking, the training programmes you're doing, all of the exercises you're undertaking are actually making progress. How, how do you know if it's working? Yeah. But, but also people focus on the things that are in front of them. So if if you're having um, your management meetings and you're, you're, the things that you're on your agenda are the things that you talk about, but those are the things that your management team will focus on. So unless you're getting some information which you can put in front of people, have a discussion about it, then it's really challenging to, to embed change. And you need to embed change because... Um, I've sat in lots and lots of leadership development meetings and you sort of sit around and and the problem is that you only talk about the people in leadership development and and, and rising through the management layers that, that people know and have exposure to and, and are front of mind. And if they're not there in that group or they're not in the room that's talking about leadership development, you're not going to get there. So somehow you needed to break this kind of this pattern, historical pattern of it's the same people that are turning up to the leadership development plans, leadership advancements and career development and they're talking about the same people so so something you needed to do to break that to try and get that that gap of you know entry level to senior management to be filled and much more even so it sounds like a quite intractable problem (laughs) and and so i was thinking how do you actually do that Um, And and at the same time the other problem that you have is is this management's attention and and i think you would probably hear this all the time from ceos um, you know, my head, my head is doing my head in thinking about all the things that are on my agenda. So, mm. you know, I've got six monthly results that have to come out and deal with what's happening with the market. I've just gotten over COVID. I've just dealt with supply chain issues, dealing with high inflation in my cost base. I've got price pressure from my customers. I can see that that retail and consumer spending is being challenged. The government's on my case around a whole bunch of things. You know. you know, I've seen all the fair work stuff. So I've got a whole team of people working on that. Um, I'm I'm looking at modern slavery and the next round of, you know, ASX corporate governance issues. Um, And and by the way, with all this, I'm trying to also grow and develop the company and do other things. So your head is just overwhelmed by these things. And if you sort of turned up to a CEO and said, by the way, you know, you need to prioritize diversity and inclusion, it's very hard. So if you're going to do something, it needs to be in a way which can um, give the leadership information, but without wanting to distract the organization or consume a lot of resources mm. in terms of their project capability or development capability. Um, so so all, all this sounds quite problematic. So how do I how do I change behaviors in an organization? How do I get more a balance in the way career progression and leadership development is managed to to try and address this gender pay gap? How do I um, get the organisation's culture and behaviour to start thinking more broadly and generously about uh, the gender mix of the people who we develop in the organisation and do it in a way where I can't spend any money or actually distract the (laughs) organisation?
1: And then, and then, yeah, so so that is like a billion dollar question because when you want to make change, you're working with busy people. You want to make that as a priority, but then you don't want to get in the way of their day to day competing priorities. Um, and and so you know, it sounds insurmountable <laughs> the problem that's presented to you.
2: And of course, the issue is it's not financial. It's not. Mm. It's not as if. It is in, in some ways, and there's plenty of, you know, we've all seen the McKinsey's report and some of the economic analysis that talks about how better decision-making leads to better value and creation of, you know, more profitable businesses over time. Yeah, um, But but to sit with a CEO and a CFO and, and, and say, focus on diversity and inclusion and your results will be better, it's a pretty challenging conversation. So in a sense, it's a non-financial measure that, Probably doesn't give you an immediate kicker, but it's the right thing to do. And and as you say, you know all of these other instant this billion dollar question. The 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 one thing that I took away, and because I'd been at industrial companies, you know, I was at Pioneer and Borel, I'd seen the journey on industrial safety, and mm. and I'm, I had a, a kind of a corollary between those two things because um, when I first joined Pioneer in 1997, industrial safety was very rudimentary. Um, It's kind of track historical lost time injuries um, and it was all uh, hindsight. It was all lagging and it was all reactive. Um, But you've seen a massive change in industrial safety across every organisation, partly driven because uh, legislation drove it, um, direct strict liability and chain of custody. All all of those changes meant that organisations got very serious about addressing safety and and the journey has been a good one. Um, and one of the key things that happened from the sort of the late 90s and early 2000s was organisations went from just measuring past, you know, how many people were injured, to measuring behavioural and predictive indicators. So it looked at things like job safety analysis, near misses, hazard identification, job risk analysis, these kinds of measures that were both conditional and behavioural based, but also predictive and um looking to try and identify where the issues are most likely to be which is where you put your effort on addressing safety concerns or safety culture um and now if you sit down in a big organization particularly a resource or an industrial organization safety will be one of the top agenda items and the lost time injury frequency rates probably very very low single digits because that's the journey that they've been on so as despondent as i was then, i had some hope that was another example of a non-financial behavioral indicator or behavioral matter that was addressed with process and system and actually has made a significant change over a number Mm. of decades so to my mind was how do we get gender diversity and inclusion to go on the same journey so that was the the hope and that was how i approached it
1: and i like i like how you could find a similar example in the past that has worked because I really wouldn't have thought that um, industrial safety could um, be thought the same as diversity. But in reality, it was about the change of behavior. I do remember the cowboy ways of doing things back in the 90s and, um, and worker safety wasn't really a big deal. I mean, the early discussion about OXNS was really trying to not have RSI from too much typing. Um, yes. that was it, really. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: Yeah, like injuries were considered to be part of being in business and
1: mm. it
2: took that mind shift to say, no, 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 it's not acceptable that one of our employees should come to work and not go home from work in the same physical condition they arrived. Right. It, it took yeah. that mindset shift. And that's what we need with diversity inclusion. It's just not, not acceptable that someone should start their career and not be able to progress in their career at the same rate as somebody just because of a mistake of gender. And so that's that was sort of chronic. the chronic. The other thing I thought that is evolving that's quite interesting is that the way people are treated and the way people um, behave in the workplace is starting to become a safety issue so this whole question of psychological safety is starting to find its way into some of the work health and safety legislation Mm. and practices and so the way you treat people and the way people um, feel in the workplace and whether they feel you know despondent whether they feel disenchanted also
1: bullying, bullying and harassment and all that which used to be acceptable behavior especially um in the construction thing as a as a way of of banter and inappropriate that um that is also a big shift in the mindset so Absolutely. um yeah no i really see now that um how that 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 was a successful transition of um and i'm not sh- saying it's complete but i'm um, you know 30 years later it is it is now you know how you behave in the office how you make sure workplace safety, psychological safety is all important um, for a worker that come to the office. So, do you want to take me through then? How did you, how, how was that jump from from your thinking and your experience within you know the shift in the mindset of industrial safety to to the um, um, gender diversity?
2: Yeah, and so this this whole question about you know safe working conditions and safe behaviours. I think it was. Can you translate like that to um, diverse and inclusive thinking and diverse and inclusive behaviours? Um, and the connection I made. And and um, I read Cheryl uh, Sandberg's book back in two thousand and seventeen when I joined the Champions of Change. And um, uh, it's not universally loved, but, um, <laughs> uh, but but it
1: was it's an important book. I remember the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I prefer Catherine Fox's book, Stop Fixing Women, which is a bit more about... <laughs> you know, yes. It's not about, you know, fixing women. It's about fixing the workplace and this lean-in. Yeah. But it was a very good... Like, it was factual. It was experiential. It was it was very good. And um, there was a bit in there about... Um, uh, and the chapter, I think, is called something like Pull Up a Seat at the Table. It talked about... Um, and, and the anecdote at the beginning of it was that uh, Tim Geithner was a Treasury Secretary and Sherwood worked at Treasury with Tim. And Tim was coming to Silicon Valley to do this breakfast presentation to a bunch of Silicon Valley CEOs. And the CEOs all kind of grabbed their breakfast and sat at the table and Tim sat down. And Tim had arrived with these senior female treasury executives and um, they kind of picked up a seat away from the main table and sat away from, you know, the main conversation. And Cheryl said she walked afterwards and said, what was that all about? You know, why didn't you sit at the main table? And they said, we didn't really think it was our place. Um, mm. And then the whole chapter was about the behaviour of men and women in that kind of that, the context of interactions and meetings and behaviours and um, and some of those stats, you know, the the it's somewhat I'm not sure if it's completely correct, but it was in Cheryl's book, so I'll I'll, I'll, I'll quote it again <laughs> anyway. But the HP stat that you know Hewlett Packard did a review and tell job applicants and um, they found that. Um, men would routinely apply for a job if they met 65% of the criteria and women wouldn't apply unless they met 100% of the criteria.
1: Yeah, it's actually 40-90. So, um, yeah. yeah, so men, if they feel they can uh, do 40% of the job, they'll apply and women at least 90 before they would, yeah, apply.
2: And and a stat I love, which was uh, male executives in the United States, 90% of them think they're in the top 10%. So this, <laughs> yes. this, whole, this whole male delusion, but also male <laughs> like that (laughs) you know that that men are more likely to be risk inclined overstate their ability be aggressive take chances um um whereas women are more likely to be thoughtful uh you you know concerned about risk more collegiate thinking about the team and so organizations have evolved to reward the behaviors that men are more likely to exhibit and not reward the behaviors that women are more likely to exhibit so my thinking was, was, how do you level this playing field? And this sort of the Cheryl idea of, you know, pull up a seat at the table, I think, well, meetings are an important event. And most big organizations, you know, meetings have become kind of the productive throughput because everybody's calendar just gets full of meetings. Mm-hmm. But, but they're important events because you can do a great job of being bringing diverse people into the organization. But if most people are sort of sitting in their workstations while the organization just plows along the way it always did things you're missing the point you need people to be around the conversations and so if you exclude people from meetings you're excluding the potential for people to have that conversation but also meetings in themselves are important because it's where information gets shared so you find out what's important to the organization what the strategic directions are so when you're planning your own work you can think about well. I understand now what's important to the organization because I've been in the meeting. I've been informed, so yeah. I'm going to I'm going to structure my work around the things that I now know are important to the organization.
1: And um, also, just to add, it's also the visibility as well. When you include the me- meeting, you're you're more visible to the the, the leaders, of the management team, or to to your colleagues, and 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 they get to hear your um, contribution to the meeting. And so that visibility is also very important.
2: Beat bingo, and you know I've sat in leadership, you know, career planning meetings, and a name will come up, and no one's no one's heard of this person, and so yeah. how, what chance have they got? Whereas if you're in the meeting, and my experience, and this is probably uh, anecdotal, is that women tend to come to meetings far better prepared than men. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what you have is the opportunity if you if you can get everybody into the room and get people give people a chance to have their say and make a, a contribution you've got a better chance of, firstly, um, getting better outcomes and better decision-making, but also having more people get visibility across the leadership of the organisation. But also, you you, you get more engagement from people. So people feel more involved, more engaged, more committed to the organisation if they feel like they're part of the communication flow. So so my thinking was, if you can change behaviours at meetings, you can go a long way to changing the behaviour in the organisation. and the beauty of that is that from a, a kind of a process or a data collection exercise, a whole bunch of data exists about meetings already because everyone's got a calendar system.
0: So
2: yeah. This was this was the, the point at Crown. I said, well, let's just do something very simple, which is let's look at the gender mix of the people who are being invited to meetings and judge or organisers based on how good a job they're doing at bringing a mix of genders to the meetings. So we built this... We built this capability back in 2017 at crown and of course we told people we we're going to be measuring this and so you, you do have that that so-called fisher effect that when you tell people you're measuring something then people's behavior changes automatically yeah um, the other thing you get is the normal management behavior to telling people that you have got to measure them on a kpi is you get the the, the typical first reaction is, "How do I manipulate the KPI?"
0: Mm. And
2: so we had everybody inviting each other's PA's for meetings and all these things.
1: And so, <laughs> oh, no. But, but at least <laughs> yep, I was yep, typical. <laughs> Just trying to game the system. Yep, yep. To, but um, but at least but it, it is um, it has created some awareness and people are taking notice of it though.
2: Absolutely, and and we started measuring this, and when we first started in 2017. Thirty-five percent of the meetings at Crown were single gender.
1: Um, mm, thought, oh, wow, is that,
2: is that good or bad? It sounds intuitively bad. Only sixteen percent were balanced, and so you've got fifty percent, roughly, that were more skewed to male than female. So, automatically, you know that that's that's an issue. That's a problem. Um, yeah. And so we started measuring this, and uh, you know, over the course of the the year, we saw that measure go from thirty five down to thirty over the course of twelve months, and the Fully balanced meanings went from 16 to 21. And at the same time, you know, we're measuring all of the other indicators. The gender pay gap went from 23% to 11 a Crown. Okay. We added 10 percentage points to the second and third layers of management. So first layer of management, 34% went to 44%. The next layer from 25% went to 35%. So, Wow.
1: That's within that 12 big, months.
2: It was within 12 months. Other things were That's going amazing. on. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. And this
2: something like this. It was high profile. It was very public. I presented it to the entire organization at some town hall meetings. Told yeah. people watching it. We had a big communication program. We were reporting on this all the time. We would do walkarounds with people and just look at their scores and things. So we we did that. So it was working really well. The only problem, um, Sandra, is that that's a quantitative piece, but there needs to be a qualitative piece as well mm. because you can, yeah, through coercion, get people to think more broadly about bringing in different people to the meeting. But if the experience of those people in the meeting is a bad one, you've potentially sent yourself backwards because you know if they're sitting in the meeting and they get talked over or they get ignored or if they make a comment and you get the size or if yeah. people start checking their emails when they start talking, they can actually feel worse having been to the meeting than if they actually yeah. had never gone there in the first place. So it needed to have something um, qualitative as well. Um, And so, uh, and again, in this whole idea, it needs to be very lightweight and easy to implement. Um, And I said, look, let's do something like the Uber. You know, people don't mind rating their ride at the end of the the Uber. So what if we have something at the end of every meeting where we just have a simple way of rating them? So the team went away and they came back and they thought about all the different permutations of what to ask. And in the end, we, we kind of, trimmed it down. I said no more than I started off with one question in the end I remember two questions. So we'd asked two questions at the end of every meeting. Um did you get an opportunity to contribute? And was your contribution respected? So and is a, it
1: a yes and no or one to five kind
2: It's it's actually the, the the scale is one is one to six so that people can't okay. sit okay. in the middle. Um <laughs>
1: oh, God, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, very good.
2: <laughs> and it's it's, it's a motor rather than numbers so that it expresses a feeling. And it's so it's sort of, there's an immediacy of it. So as soon as you walk out of the meeting, as you're on your way to the next meeting, you know, if you've had a bad experience, you can just do two frowny faces and go, you know, that was a bad meeting because, and and obviously once you start collecting data and doing it, it's incumbent on the organization to, to respond to it. But even without that, and I've had this experience lots of times is that you can see people leaving a meeting and they've had a bad experience. Uh, there's there's no avenue for them to do anything about that bad experience. Mm. I mean, it very rarely raises to the level where you'll you know go to HR or go to your manager or ring up the helpline or whatever. It's probably not rising to that level. It's it's a level of frustration and disappointment and disenchantment.
1: Yeah,
2: probably yeah. not to the point. Whereas this is it is an avenue for people to to at least communicate. And then if others are seeing the same thing, at some point. It'll rise to a level where the person who was charged with having that meeting um, organised and run well will be getting this feedback that people are actually walking out of this meeting, feel like they weren't given an opportunity to say something. And even when they did say something, they weren't treated well in response to it. So it gives people an opportunity to actually
1: do something and I guess um, you know, I remember the the very early days of my career. You know, the first time I had to chair a meeting, and all that's kind of scary. And you know, you want to <laughs> make sure you do the right thing, but nobody teaches you how to really run a meeting. This is all, I guess, learned through whether it's university or on the job training. So this tool, when the feedback is given to the organizer, who realised, okay, I didn't really do a good job. Um, it would help them to improve on how to do it. I. I
2: Absolutely. And yeah. you know, it's called gender fitness. And I could remember um, we'd be sitting in meetings in Crown in 2017 and 2018. And everyone would sit down and they'd look around the room. And if it was heavily, you know, male oriented, people would say this isn't a very gender fit meeting, is it? <laughs> <laughs> or, that's or if good. Somebody, or if somebody made a comment, you know, people would say, Well, hang on a second, that's not a very gender fit comment, is it? So once you kind of it becomes part of the the kind of the mainstream dialogue then it's it's actually gives you license to call out bad things without feeling as if you know am I taking a risk here is that is that gonna you know am I gonna look silly am I gonna look you know weak or whatever it's no 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 it's endorsed by the organization and everybody understands when you say that that you know you're actually helping the organizer by saying well hang on a second you know This meeting, you know, next time, think more broadly about who you invite. But secondly, in in the meeting, if you say something that's really not appropriate and not going to be regarded well when it comes to reviews, it it helps them when you call it out real time. Because, as you say, there's not an instruction manual on how to lead good meetings, is there?
1: Plenty of books. I mean, yeah, there are plenty of books, but this is actually real-time feedback, and so in in a very gentle way, um, so that you're not getting somebody who has to type up like a review to say, yeah. <laughs> you know, blow blah, blow how it all worked. So, so uh, I guess, um, um, was there a shift? I mean, you talked about that people are pointing out behaviour. Did the change of behaviour happen rather quickly? Was it also in the t- first twelve months that um, you're seeing that even the organisers were? leading the meeting uh, being more inclusive
2: absolutely and um, as you say you know 12 months actually there was other things happening and and we had some good national hockey but once you start building these things into kpos which was where we were going so you start having KPOs factoring in the way you behave and the way you think about diversity and inclusion um, we're making miles of progress it fitted in with a whole bunch of other things we're doing around flexible work and other things and so it was it was a key part of a very important journey on mm-hmm. taking the organization to being you know re- very progressive in terms of gender equality um, and for the organization it, it gave transparency because you know hopefully people want to adopt a diverse and inclusive inclusive organization for the right reasons yeah um, but if you listen to kate jenkins she's warning people that if you don't there's legislation which has been passed which will come into effect in december of this year that will start to be a risk for the organization if they yeah. don't adopt this kind of behavior so with respect that we coming um boards and other you know governing bodies will be looking for some measures and some transparency on are we good on this diversity stuff? So I've talked to board members of organisations that have been through issues on sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, and yeah. I've sat around the board table and thought, we thought we were good at this, you know, we thought we did this stuff well, but how do you how do you know if you haven't got some data and haven't got measures and haven't got transparency on it? So, so yeah. I think for CEOs for senior executives to kind of know what's going on in the organisation and having some transparency having data that you can talk to yeah. people about. I, I think that's that's the next step in this journey.
1: And do you know um, also the, the the requirements of ESG, um, you know, international level, um, in Europe and US, um, this sort of um, reporting on behaviours would also feed nicely where the company can show, the organisation can show the improvements over time and how they're being measured and, and what, what that's been... Done and do you see then with the improvement of uh, the you know of the behavior relating to the performance of of employees and and company the correlation?
2: Yeah, and the you can see the correlation, Sandra. The the challenge with any research project or any data <laughs> analysis is causation. So yeah. you can see correlations between better organizational performance on whatever measure, whether it's uh, profitability EBITDA margins EBIT margins whether it's return on capital whether it's um, the value of the company relative to assets employed all of these measures you can see there's a higher prospect of doing well on those measures and outperforming the peer group if you have a higher proportion of females in leadership and executive positions yeah it, it is challenging actually though saying you know decision by decision or result by result can you actually pin down that it's the case. So it takes an element of belief that that better decisions come with more diverse thinking, that half your customer base is female, so why not think about half of the customers every time you have a discussion about your business, what you're selling, what your products are. So, so I think intuitively it is. And so there's plenty of, if you wanted to make the business case and you're open-minded to it, you could mount the business case that diversity gives you better financial and economic outcomes. But if if people are sceptical about that and they don't buy, it's just the right thing to do. You've always got to pull back to say, well, the legislation, whether you're in Australia, which is probably one of the most advanced, with um, you know this you you found positive duty, the positive duty to prevent discrimination as opposed to dealing with it when it arises, which is probably quite advanced relative to other countries. But every most jurisdictions of discrimination legislation that. Is it's inappropriate to discriminate on the basis of gender so most most countries and most jurisdictions would um it would be favorable for them to do things to avoid it mm. um even if you don't buy the business case but the business case i think is there's enough data out there to say why wouldn't you why wouldn't you do it because there's a decent yeah. prospect that you'll do better
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, there's enough data to prove, like you said, um, in terms of the overall improvement, and and I've also just published a book of how, um, yes. you know, gender gender balance, you know, in leadership do drive innovation and profitability and and yes. and success. And and um and I guess, like you said, nowadays, um, if 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 leaders don't feel compelled for for those reasons, the governance itself. Um is just as compelling, um especially with legislation, yes, in Australia, but also um um some of the countries um, have have some legislation around it. I know, um look, I know we can keep talking, and I just really have to try and wrap this up. um so so I guess um if we just in in the next couple of questions, if you could quickly um explain that how now this ties into what you're doing um, as the CEO of gender fitness.
2: I just love, Sandra, to to use this to make a difference. I think it has the potential Mm -hmm. to change the lives of um, women who are in the workforce now who are excluded or even when they're included, they have terrible experiences. And it won't instantly change behaviours, but but, but putting a, a spotlight onto what goes on in the meetings at the time, you know, real time in the moment when people could have the choice of doing a good thing or a bad thing if it just tilts people to doing a good thing, I, I think that can make a lot of difference to the the way women feel about being engaged and part of the workforce. So if I can use this for good, um, yes. that's, certainly, that's certainly what I'd like to try and do. And so, um, and, and, and because it is um, relatively easy to implement, it just plugs straight in, it can be implemented in, in any organization in a day, and you can start getting data instantly real time. Uh, a lot of the friction for the systems implementation, you know, that that mm. require long lead times and, you know, whole configurations. Right, yeah. You avoid all that and you can give it to a CEO or a senior executive and say, it costs nothing, it's done in a day. And you can start seeing this information real time from now. And you can start having serious conversations with your leadership team about the extent of the problem and the nature of it and what they're doing to address it and whether the things they're doing are making a difference, I, 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 that, that would be something that would be very rewarding for me if I could see that happen.
1: Yeah, and I think it's um, it's it's like it's automatically plugged into the Microsoft product. So whether you're using Teams, Outlook, all that makes it really nice and easy. If they're already on that platform, it's it's just an, a, a little like plug-in to to an existing system.
2: Absolutely, and as you said at the beginning, Microsoft piloted this, and so we worked for three years with Microsoft to build it. So it was built all on the Microsoft architecture. Their software engineers in Seattle helped us build it. So it just it sits in the the Asia marketplace. So it basically plugs straight into your Microsoft Active Directory, Exchange, and, uh, and 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 Outlook or your calendar system. So it's frictionless to implement, and you get data immediately. And dashboards that can be you know sitting on your desk within a week. So it's um, it's the implementation is not is not technically a challenge, but as I think we've been touching on, Sandra, it's the culture. Yeah. And it does kind of intrude a little into kind of one of the last places where um, male domination exists. Mm. you know, who am I going to invite to this meeting? I want to get the same old you know mates of mine who I bring to every meeting. So they're the ones I'm yeah. gonna invite. We'll talk about the same things. We'll come to the same conclusions. Um, and for all the reasons we've talked about, that's just not right. But when you start to challenge that, that's when you start to find resistance in organizations. So that's part of the challenges, is, is having a leadership that's, that's open-minded about saying, i yeah, will overcome what I fully expect to be resistance from people saying, it's starting to intrude on the way I treat people in meetings. And you sort of go, well, yeah, that's the point.
1: <laughs> that is the point. And that's when the behavior needs to shift. Well, I'm going to come to my last question and and um and look, it's been it's really it's um fascinating and enjoyable just to listen to your journey of of um what you've done and especially um creating a tool that sounds very simple, but the work behind it um and hearing the the results of it is is something I'm very excited about because um that is that is a a way of trying to change the behavior because trying to achieve having more women as you know in leader leadership position or, or re- well represented in in um, leadership team and boards is is not easy. It is complex, but you've you have actually have a solution for something on 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 um, the meeting behaviors, which is a core part of an organization. So on on just on the very last question, which is I ask for every interviewee. Um, I guess based on both the experience in in your work with gender fitness and, and also your uh, career journey, what is your advice to other CEOs who are struggling to achieve diversity in their company, even though they want to or need to?
2: Um, and, and as we've touched on before, um, the life of a CEO or a C-suite executive is all about priorities and dealing mm. like with all of the compelling issues that are in front of you, and, and this is one that. Um, probably won't ever raise itself to a level where it's like at the top of the list of things to do unless you've got a real problem. And like fair work, like, you know, issues with royal commissions or other things, best off getting there before it becomes something that's at the top of your list, treated as something that now with legislation and other things changing, it could potentially get to the top of your list. But a little bit of effort now is is much more valuable than trying to fix it later on. So amongst everything else that's on your agenda, carve out a little bit of time, talk to the people in the organisation who are doing this, give them support because nothing is going to go anywhere unless the leadership jumps in behind it. Listen to them, um, give them resources if they need resources, give them backing. So when you are talking and walking around and having conversations with people, back them up, but also be very mindful because as a leader, um, the things you say, no matter how casual, or you know if you think it's a joke, all those other things, both things matter and make a big impact on people and that stuff gets around. So be very thoughtful about this topic when you're having discussions with people, but back up the team, get behind them, jump onto this survey opportunity, you don't need a lot of money. You, don't, you just need to, to lend a little bit of leadership credit to it. And if you get behind it now, it'll guarantee avoid a problem down the track. But, you know, you never know. You might surprise yourself and it might actually give you much better decisions and <laughs> might actually create a lot of
1: economic value. Oh, I think that's very good advice, Ken. Thank you for that. Um, thank you again for being part of this podcast interview. I really appreciate your time and, um, and sharing um your insights as well as the um experience that you had with your uh product gender fitness and i actually like to see more and more companies adopting that to start making change
2: excellent thanks and it was great to talk to you always good
0: thanks ken today's episode is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors firstly we're sponsored by b2buy b2buy is your trusted business buying platform that simplifies and automates your buying process helping you buy smarter and faster giving you greater visibility and value with 100 products in one place b2buy is passionate about connecting diverse suppliers with corporate buyers so you can create a more inclusive business environment and buy better with www.b2buy.online our second sponsor is Holman Webb Lawyers, an award winning and dynamic full service Australian law firm with offices in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Adelaide. Not only do Holman Webb offer comprehensive legal services, but they are also a proud recipient of the LX Star, recognizing their commitment to achieving gender equality and leadership. Discover more about their services, initiatives, and industry leading insights at www.holmanweb.com.au. Lastly, <laughs> Our sponsor The CEO Magazine is an iconic, global media brand that inspires and promotes excellence within the business world. It is a source of information, inspiration and motivation for the world's most successful leaders, executives, investors and entrepreneurs. Go to www.thesiomagazine.com.